Welcome to episode number two. We are now in 1996. Uh, we've moved on from 1984. We hope you enjoyed the last episode if you managed to catch that. If not, go back and uh, go through the archives or archives. Make sure you listen to that. Um, and yeah, we'll just get straight into it. So Euro 1996, European Championships saw a return uh, to England for Portugal, a place where they'd had some success in the past, their first ever tournament was the 1966 World Cup in England Uh, so they were hoping to maybe generate a bit more of that same um, some of that same energy and put out performances just like they did in 1966 where they absolutely captivated the audience uh, around the world for their performances in the group stage in um, uh, notably in Goodison Park and then before being eliminated in the semi-finals at Wembley So, what's happened between 1984 and Euro 1996, and why did Portugal leave it so long? Well, they attempted qualification. Uh, There was two more European Championships before this one. 1988, they finished third in the group, the qualifying group. And in 1992, they finished second, just two points behind Holland. Considered themselves slightly unlucky to not qualify. And that sort of brings us to 1996, Lots has changed, lots has happened. Just off the bat, anything that you remember about the tournament or going back and watching it? Me? From that time, I don't remember anything. I was only four at the time. But I think <laughs> the most important thing that happened between 84 and 96 was the fact that Portugal had won two World Cups in the under 20s. So they won in 89 and 91. So 96 was beginning of the peak years of the golden generation as with Figo, Rui Costa, João Pinto, um, George Costa, Fernando Couto, all of those players end up being very important in the national team and, and in the teams abroad. I think that was the main thing that made people start believing that this team was was for real. Yeah. This For 96, was easy as well to qualify because it was the first Euros with 16 teams. So yeah. they made the first and second in almost every group uh, went through. And yeah. Portugal's Portugal group was quite easy. Uh, with um, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Austria, Latonia, and Liechtenstein. Portugal topped the group, but in the last three games, they only needed a win for to for the to guarantee the, the qualification. So it was a lot easier than what was in, in um, 84. And so being able to, to qualify and being a, with the belief that would be able to go through was, was a lot better. And then for the Portuguese teams, Obviously, Porto was um, won the title for the second time in a row. Was they were on the way to win the five titles in a row until '99. Uh, Porto as well in '94. So two years before this, were in the semi-finals of the Champions League, which was already quite a big achievement. And in '94 as well, so the same year, Benfica ended up being in the semi-finals of the Cup Winners' Cup. So in terms of clubs, was quite still in a strong position. Uh, I think after this one and for the other ones, you'll see that it goes a bit more downhill, like uh, 
apart from the Porto of Mourinho, but um, I think was was still in a good place in the, in terms of the teams. But I think for me the biggest contest was the fact that they won the World Cups and yeah. having more and more players going abroad and experimenting different things and bringing that to the national team. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, that's we're going to come to that. Such a a big a big thing. The nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety one. Yeah, under we call it the under twenty World Cup back then. It was known as the uh, World Youth Championships. And as you say, that sort of sparked the golden generation. You only have to see the average age of the teams when we compare to nineteen eighty four. And in the 1996, and as you say, look at the clubs that the players are playing for. The likes of Luis Figo was only 23 years old in this tournament. He's playing for. He was already at Barcelona at this point. Paulo Sousa, 25. He was at Juventus. Rui Costa, 24. Fiorentina in Serie A. So, as you say, a lot more players were were moving about, and then, um, and then you also had the, the the older the older people in the in the group. But even even those players were. I mean, there's a lot of players who were in the peak of their sort of time, 26, 27, the likes of Domingos Paciencia, Jules uh, Cadet, there's a couple of others, like the defenders, Fernando Couto was 26, uh, Carlos Secretario, 26, uh, Dimas, 27, so you yeah. had a real mix of of both sort of youth and, and that experience, and I think you're, you're right in, in pointing that out, Philippe, because when we actually move on to Euro 2000, and that's being sort of those players I mentioned there who were around 22, 23, 24, at this point, they were four years older. So they were in 26, 27, 28, going into their prime. A lot of people talk about Euro 2000 as being sort of, uh, this is the golden generation arriving on the big stage. But 96, four years earlier, uh, this is where we were starting to see the fruits of that, um, the, the 89 and 91 teams. And there was a real mix of, those players, because some of the players didn't play in eighty nine, but played in ninety one. Some of the some of the players played in eighty nine and, and didn't play in ninety one, and they sort of all came together. Um, couple of different you know years between them, but yeah, the team was sort of there, as you say, optimistic in eighty four qualifying group with Finland, Poland, and Soviet Union. So there was just four teams in the group, and as you say, there was both the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Latvia, Austria, and Liechtenstein. The qualification process was, for Portugal, pretty straightforward because um, Portugal don't like to do things the the easy way. But, um, yeah, they, they were surprisingly comfortable. They only actually lost one game, uh, and that was uh, to the Republic of Ireland in Dublin. But they got their own back on the last last qualifier match day. Uh, they won 3-0 in uh, Lisboa. Yeah, Again, and, and sorry to interrupt, but for people that want to see, go and watch the first goal from that game. Rui Costa's goal, which is Wait, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And I, I saw the highlights of this game and uh, the commentator in Portugal on the TV saying before Rui Costa scores, and he's like uh, a chip <laughs> over the keeper. And he says, to be fair with him, he says like a few minutes before that he notes that the keeper from Ireland was always ahead of his line. So he said if Portugal are able to create that to happen, uh, we'll, we'll score. And it's like five minutes later, because <laughs> <in> the, <laughs> the best piece of commentary ever, the best pundit ever. And then they, they had some some real attacking, um, and we'll, we'll get to that because Portugal actually received a lot of plaudits, um, most notably uh, Ruud Hullet, the Holland, the, the Dutch legend. He, he said on, I think it was on BBC, working as a pundit, he called, Portugal, he called it sexy football. 
the that sort of aesthetically pleasing style, which now we sort of come, you know, when you look at 2000, 2004, 2006 and, and um, in, into the future, Portugal trying to play attractive football, trying to play the right way is something that we sort of take for granted. But it was it, this sort of 1996 coming onto the European stage, only the second time at a Euros. And um and again playing the football zenu, playing this little football, but perhaps to to an even better degree than in eighty four, even though in eighty four Portugal managed to go further. Um as I say, there was an eight nil win in, in qualifying against Liechtenstein, there was a seven nil win against the same opponents. Um they they put three past Latvia, you know, they, they were playing well, playing attacking football, and as I say, another three goals against the Republic of Ireland. And um they, you know they weren't conceding too many really clean sheets in um I think it was maybe four or five of the games so really impressive performance going forward and then just a bit of context about the federation uh, we've obviously missed out what happened at the World Cup in eighty six because we're only dealing with the European Championships but it felt like the federation had improved their focus in my opinion they tried to move on a little bit firstly from 84 and 86 it still wasn't completely there Portugal had only had just missed out on it felt like the world's biggest party in, in USA 94 which was a tournament that everyone still speaks about and, and Portugal had to watch you know from the TV the failure of that tournament it was sort of still lingering over them but as you say an expand an expanded tournament which allowed Portugal to have greater wiggle room in, in qualifying and then also by the time they got to the tournament um, the optimism and the hope was was sort of rising. They played a c- couple of pre-tournament games, including a one-one draw with England. Uh, obviously, on home soil, the, the thing at the time in England was you know football's coming home. But for Portugal, it was almost it, it was also like they'd arrived again, missing out on two European Championships and another World Cup. And now with this golden generation, it was a time for them to really sort of step up. To that, um, to that, to that plate, and and show what he could do. The the manager at the time was Antonio Oliveira. Um, he actually had some um, some assistance uh, during the tournaments. Some of the backroom staff uh, were actually at the '66 World Cup, and whether that was for sentimental reasons or whether that was because they'd been there before in England, and I can't stress enough the importance of this whole feeling of as I say football's coming home. It felt like Portugal were returning back to their you know, not their not their football at home, but the place where they'd played the first ever World Cup was England. So they sort of had that connection of right, we're going back, we've got some unfinished business. And um, it actually it's actually quite funny when you when you look at the two tournaments, both sixty six World Cup and the ninety six Euros, because a lot of the same things that undone Portugal. Um, sort of players being jaded, quite tired, maybe mismanagement of the players' legs throughout the tournament. A lot of similarities and Obviously, we have a lot of listeners who will be based in England, so it's definitely something to look out for as the podcast goes on. And they came up against again, Philippe. It looks like Portugal never get the easy group, even with twenty twenty euros around the corner. Same thing there. Um, just like in eighty four on our last episode, Portugal were greeted in the group by Germany, who were the defending champions and World Cup finalists just two years earlier. This time around, Denmark in the group, and you know now nowadays in 2020, 2021, you might think, you know, Denmark, they're not the European powerhouse you might think of, but they were actually, again, the defending European champions. They won in uh, in 1992 and sort of captivated uh, Europe with their performances. They The tournament kicks off and um, 
as I say, the names that we mentioned before, Luis Figo, Rui Costa, Joao Pinto, they were incredible in that first match against Denmark. They completely surpassed the expectations of you know Europe. And also, I think, completely nullified Denmark. Although the game ended at 1-1, a lot of people were disappointed that this Danish side, who you know had won four years earlier, they were looking a bit heavy-legged in midfield. And, and Luis Figo, in particular, absolutely ran the show that day. Um, they actually... As I say, came out 1-1. Portugal actually went behind. Uh, they conceded and then uh, managed to to equalise and had some good chances to win the game. By half-time, they had much the better chances. Um, and it felt like, you know, if Portugal could keep pushing, then they could, you know, end up pulling off a, a real shock and beating the, the defending European Championship, champ, uh, European champions, sorry. That wasn't to be. Uh, towards the end of the game as well, Denmark had two great chances. Vitor Baye in goal for... Portugal pulled off two exceptional saves. So on the base of it, at the end of the game, slightly unlucky not to win, but also quite lucky that Vitor was was on his job towards the end of the match. Otherwise, it could have been it could have been worse for Portugal. But on the balance of things, um, you know, you'd have taken a draw at the start of the tournament. But yeah, in in theory, this one was going to be the hardest game of the group stage. Um, so I think the draw was 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 okay for Portugal. Uh, the base team of this tournament was uh, obviously Bayi in goal. Then the defenders was Secretario, Dimas, Elder, Fernando Couto. Then in the centre mids was Paul Sousa, which was probably the, um, the most famous player at this time. Oceano, Rui Costa, which was obviously beginning being a superstar in, in Serie A. And then up front was Figo, uh, João Pinto and Sá Pinto. Um, this Denmark was, was still a good team, but you could see that the best players are getting already quite old, so the Lodrup brothers, Michael and, and Brian, and obviously Schmeichel, but especially Michael Lodrup was already in a quite uh, advanced stage of, of his career, and that made Denmark not as, not as strong as what everyone would think they could be, but to be fair, they missed the World Cup in, in 94 as well, so it was already a bit of a, a weird theme. For me, the best thing of this game was how Portugal celebrated their goals throughout the tournament. So I don't know if you've seen it, but when Sapinto scores, he does that celebration and they all run to the bench to kiss the yeah. flag. So Antonio yeah. Oliveira always had um, a Portuguese <laughs> flag with him to give him luck, I imagine. And every time sport, uh, Portugal scored throughout this tournament, they would go in and kiss the flag, which is nice. nice such touch. a nice little touch. There were some brilliant celebrations in the... Um, and we'll move on to the next game. But yeah, another that's celebration. the best celebration. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that we'll come to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the game finished 1-1 and it was sort of... Even the press, you know, in Portugal were, you know, pleasantly surprised. As you say, it was a, sort of an Asian Denmark squad, but they they managed to, to pull it off and they were, as I say, unlucky to not run out winners. The other two teams... That in the group, Turkey and Croatia, really difficult for Portugal first and foremost, and also the press to gauge how they do. Yeah, they managed to make it through qualification, but for both of these teams, it was the first time they'd ever appeared at a European Championship. So it's very difficult to gauge, almost like when Portugal sort of sprang out of nowhere in 1984. You know, they hadn't been in a tournament since 66. It was their first ever Euros. You're sort of an unknown quantity. People don't know how to really perceive you. All they have to go on is the qualifying matches, um, but how you do in a tournament, you know, when the lights are on you, when the cameras are on you, when the fans, when the stadiums are packed, is a completely different story. Uh, so approaching the game with Turkey, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of an unknown quantity. They, um, Portugal actually ran out 
um, 1-0 winners. And um, this was the the celebration, an absolutely brilliant celebration. Um, the 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 back <laughs> the backflip. If you if you if you if you get if you can go online and um, and find footage uh, of of the goal, it was if I'm not mistaken, it's Fernando Couto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with his long hair, <laughs> with his long hair swaying as he as he. Maneuvers his way through the air with a backflip after scoring, which is not not something that you typically see from from centre uh, back. From, yeah, centre back from a player who plays. Usually, I mean, we're like we we're used to seeing it with the likes of Lewis Nanny in in recent seasons, but yeah, usually a winger or a forward or you know even a midfielder, but a central defender leaping through the air with such grace is just absolutely brilliant to see. And um, that game it actually wasn't um, was was quite tough because. They actually restricted Turkey. Actually, restricted Portugal to. Um, there wasn't a lot of clear cut chances. Again, the the names we mentioned before, the likes of Rui Costa and Luis Figo, were were the star men. But it was if you could try and stifle sort of their creativity and stop them from running the game, and um, then you know that's the key to, to to making it a tight game. And although Portugal ran out winners, uh, as I say, just just one nil, um, the best sort of attack and performance didn't come until. The last, uh, the last game in the groups, and Philippe, there's a, there's a bit of a strange story about this game. I don't know whether, obviously, because we don't know what we've researched for each other, um, about the preparation that the Croatian team underwent for this game, um. So that if you actually look at the lineups, they changed although, seven plays, I think, Croatia. Yeah, the they, last they, game, because they, they already qualified at this they, stage. They didn't know they were so, going to finish first or second, but they knew they would qualify anyway. So they, they ended up they... changing uh, seven players, and in, yeah, and, and end up being quite a easy game for for Portugal because obviously they ended up winning three nil. But yeah. um, but everyone was looking at this Croatia as in like the outsider, and mm-hmm. and even though obviously like I said it was the first time they've been part of the tournament, but these players is not their first time because obviously they already been playing uh, under other uh, national team. So they made a lot of changes. Was in the piecing, and then obviously in '98, Croatia ended up being in the semi-finals of the World Cup. So obviously there was that big generation as well. Uh, but yeah, so they they made a lot of changes. Portugal still play with their best team because they weren't sure if they would qualify or not. Because obviously it would depend on the Denmark-Turkey game if Portugal wouldn't win against Croatia. So <clears throat> the first goal was Secretario assisting to Figo. I think Figo has in this tournament. Probably side by side with 2000, uh, the best tournament for Portugal. I think 96 and 2000 are the two best tournaments uh, Figo has for Portugal. And then he assists the second goal for, for João Pint. And then Domingos scores the, the last one to make the, the 3-0 and that being a very easy win. But this Croatia yeah. team would already seen. And if you see the, not this game, but the other two games, even on, on just the highlights, you see with the likes of Davos Soka and uh, Daris Simic, uh, Slaven Bilic, too, they would become a very, very strong team. And they uh, play Czech Republic. So, yeah, very, very strange. But as you say, a, a, really, a really good performance from Portugal against, you know, what was uh, a weak team. And they, I think it was after that game, that was when uh, Ruud Hullet came coined the phrase "sexy football." I, I might be wrong; it might have been a little bit earlier, but I'm sure it was after the Croatia game. Um, and then again, we we go to uh, the Czech Republic, the game against the Czech Republic, and this unfortunately is where 
Portugal's tournament came to an end. Um, I say I alluded to it before in terms of the players being jaded. Um, there's some newspaper the reports from from the game that you can actually go back and sort of translate that in Portuguese. But they describe uh, sort of like the key talisman in the side, the likes of Rui Costa, Luis Figo. Uh, you could see that they were they were tiring uh, in the legs, and it became sort of easier to defend against and which is understandable uh, and I think as the game has developed and has you know f- footballers sort of move forward it's a lot easier now f- to be able to manage the footballers workload despite there being obviously it's a lot you know faster as a game now and everything's a sports science and all the sort of implementations that have came in um, rotation and substitutions and making sure that everyone is in tip-top condition um, whereas it feels like you know pre-day 2000 you go back it's a little bit more like you know if you're fit and you're ready to play then you'll play and uh, I think that again that's that caught up with Portugal um, in terms of alternating the players and obviously in a tournament like this you, you go into a quarter-final you want to play your strongest side um, but it was that first 45 minutes were very hard fought um, but then the second half, yeah, it felt like Portugal had just run out a little bit of steam, which, again, was the same thing that happened in 1966. And um, the, lots of correlations between the two tournaments. You know, the likes of um, Samoyes was there on the backroom staff as he was uh, in 66. And sort of those similarities in terms of just sort of, you know, running out of steam. It was an expanded tournament. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't like an 84 where... You know, you, you, the qualifying stage is a lot shorter when by the time you get to the tournament, it's a lot shorter. And before you know it, you play a couple of games and you're in the semi final or potentially the final. This was a little bit more drawn out, and I think that sort of played on the Portuguese legs a bit. Uh, and that unfortunately, the the um the, the tournament ended there. The the goal, Philippe, if you go back and watch the goal, it was like such it. a <laughs> yeah it was just it's still it, it's i say it's still bitter to take but i wasn't I, I wasn't i wasn't watching it when i was one years old but i mean the amount of times you, you watch it and you think ah, if, if portugal could have just avoided that and managed to you know sort of it's such a series of mistakes that yeah, that it, moment better, isn't it? yeah yeah because he's Poboski uh, is quite lucky in the way he ends up uh, dribbling past two of the players. But then Fernand Couto is not in his right place. But yeah, he's way out of his line. <laughs> I don't really yeah. know what he's thinking in that moment. And then, of course, he's a very good piece of skill to to chip the ball over the keeper from so far out. But but yeah, this game, I think, and <clears throat> reading stuff from back then and, and speaking, especially with my, my dad, because obviously he remembers this tournament very well. The, everyone says that Portugal look at this game thinking that they were going to be in the semi-finals. No one took uh, Czech Republic very seriously, which was obviously ended up being a mistake, because they still had a very good uh, group of players. Czech Republic, they had Paul Boski, they had uh, Pavel Nedved, even though he doesn't play this game, but he was start to appearing. He had Patrick Berger, uh, Smitha that went to play in, 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 in Liverpool. So. Even though uh, it's, it's still looking at the names, of course, Portugal was, was that much a better team than, than the Czech Republic. Czech Republic got quite lucky to qualify, actually, because they scored. They they had to at least have a point against Italy in the last game of the group. Um, and they were losing 3-2 and they scored in the last minute to make it 3-3. So they were very, very close not to qualify. Um, 
same thing as with with uh, Portugal and, and looking at what the teams were doing at the time. Sparta de Braga actually reached the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup this year. So there was already indication that they would be uh, good uh, in the tournament. But during the game, yes, Apinto has a very good chance when he's still nil-nil. Uh, like we said, we've got a bit of luck of Poborski in the goal. But the last 10 minutes that Portugal plays, they play against 10 men and they were still not yeah. able to break down yeah. uh, Czech Republic. Uh, Cadet, George Cadet, which was at Celtic at a time and he was a very good striker, only comes on for the last 10 minutes. And there's a very good story about uh, him in the Flash interview. The Portuguese journalist asked to the Antonio Oliveira, why did he put Cadet only for the last 10 minutes? And his answer was, I didn't put him in for the last 10 minutes. I put him in to play 40 minutes because it would be the 10 minutes plus the half an hour of extra time. Yeah, it's such a... <laughs> imagine at this time having Fernand Sanchez saying, I just put Ronaldo for the last 10, but I'm actually thinking about extra time already. It's just yeah. ridiculous. So, yeah, it's a bit of a bittersweet because looking at this team, I feel we could have gone to the semifinals again. And end up being a tournament that people forget a bit because the golden generation was not at this peak. Portugal just gets to the quarterfinals. There's no like a game that's memorable. Uh, like 84, you had the, even though we lose, it was the Portugal game. France in 2000. We're going to talk about it uh, in another yeah. in another episode. We had obviously the Portugal England game, and every oh, game nice. in the big tournament that went far, there was this moment. And in this in this tournament, was a little bit under the radar because of that. I think. The yeah. um, connection to the tournament is not very big in between Portuguese people because of it. But even though I think, like I said, Figo at this tournament was amazing. Just go and see highlights of him. And yeah. 96 Absolutely and as a joke. Show, especially Absolutely in the group joke. stages, just so good. Um, the As you say, the what's, I feel like this is the sort of... Because we, we, we spoke on our last podcast about 84 being Portugal's introduction. But then to reintroduce sort of on back onto that stage after so long out but then again to sort of disappear for a while and, and it felt like at this the culmination of the golden generation sort of coming through the the mix of youth and experience and knowing that within the next couple of next couple of years hopefully this team will go on to do you know some amazing things and, and that wasn't to be in terms of bringing home silverware but the, this for portuguese people as well and I'm sure your your dad will attest to this, Philippe. Um, in terms of this phenomenon of of making it to the tournament and then missing out for a couple of tournaments, and it it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Portugal would be at every single tournament. Which for our listeners now, especially our younger listeners, they probably can't imagine a tournament without Portugal. They can't imagine a tournament without sort of the the, the heavyweights that are in it. But um, this was this, the nine nineteen ninety eight, just two years after this European Championships was. Was a real moment because after after the missing out on the nineteen ninety eight World Cup, um, that was the last time that Portugal missed out on either the European Championships or the World Cup finals, um, from up until today. So it feels like this this European Championships, um, they knew after this Euros, this was the start. Because if we're excluding World Cups and we take out the failure of sort of ninety eight qualification, this ninety six sparked what were to be the following European Championships right up uh, to the present day. So there was sort of a shift and there was there was no more sort of qualifying and then not qualifying. And, and whether or not we talk about why Portugal didn't qualify, it's, 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 it's all secondary because the thing is, as I say, even for 98, Portugal weren't there. So, um, but in terms of the European Championships, 96, and then we move on until 
at the end of of the uh, the European Championships timeline as it is today, which which stopped in Euro twenty sixteen. Obviously, Portugal again have qualified for the Championships that are kicking off in just a couple of days' time, which we're so excited for. But yeah, I felt like this tournament was a real a real moment, as you say. It's 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 very forgotten, and people do look to Euro two thousand and think that's when Portugal. You know, this is it. This is Portugal sort of arriving. But as you say, Philippe, I, I'm 100% agree. I think looking back at the tournament and looking back uh, at some of the things that could have been sort of alleviated, some of the mistakes, um, as you say, even even the, the substitutions, having one eye on on extra time, you know, playing with, with players whose legs might not have uh, had, had a full game in them or, as you say, underestimating opponents. There was a couple of things that if you could go back and change, and Portugal maybe could have went to the semis or, or even reached the final, but it wasn't to be. Um, 2000, which we'll move on to next, you need to tell our listeners they need to tune into 2000 because that tournament, that's when we really get cooking on this series, I think. Yeah, for me, apart from the, obviously, 2016 with uh, Edes Go, for me, 2000 was the best football we played. Well, yeah, like 2016 is good because we won it, but in terms of football, it's not great. But in terms of having Figo at absolutely peak, Rui Costa, João Pinto, uh, Nuno Gomes appearing and looking like to be the next uh, big thing at the time. And in, in the football we played that tournament was unbelievable. So I'm buzzing to talk about that one next time. <laughs> right, well, I'm sure we'll, um, we'll be tuning in. And uh, I'm sure as the... Uh... As the podcast series gets on, we'll be getting more and more excited as we as we draw to not only 2016 but to uh, to the 2020 European Championships, and hopefully uh, we can do another special uh, after the the title is brought home. <laughs> uh, that'll probably come back to bite me if we don't do too well. But um, again, that this has been Euro 1996, um, a disappointment in terms of Portugal's exit, but I feel like this was the start of something big and the start of something that really, really should have went on to win a title. No, it wasn't the end. It actually sort of paved the way for how the rest of the world saw Portugal and Portuguese football going forward. And uh, I can't wait to get on to the, uh, the next episode. I hope you'll all join us there. Thanks. And uh, Philippe, thank you very much. See you in 2000, mate. <laughs> Cheers.